The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 35, The Siege of Jerusalem. Not a lot is certain about the origins of the city of Jerusalem. There would have certainly have been human activity in the Levant for as far back as human history demonstrates a migration out of Africa. But a reference to a city in this region may have been as far back as the Middle Kingdom of Egyptian history around 4,000 years ago, although we cannot be absolutely certain that the city was actually Jerusalem itself. Excavations certainly suggest that Jerusalem is likely to be this old, so the suspicion is quite high. We can feel a lot more confidence of its existence during the New Kingdom period, not least of all because the Egyptians expanded their influence to include the lands of modern Israel. And this is felt to be the period in which Jerusalem's first biblical mentions date from. According to the Bible, the city was conquered by King David of the Israelites, bringing the connection between Jerusalem and Israel into reality. The city would become the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel, and David's son Solomon would build the first temple there in honour of the God of the Judeans, Yahweh. It would remain the capital of the Kingdom of Judea after the fragmentation of the United Kingdom. This would leave the city vulnerable to attacks from many different peoples, including the Egyptians, Assyrians, Philistines and Arameans, among others. At their maximum expansion, the Assyrians took control of the Levant, including the lands of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. The Bible describes Jerusalem as a city with a voice and with dignity, but the reality was that the Assyrians were likely too powerful for the city and it was just one of many of the Assyrian conquests in the Middle East during their heyday around the 8th century BCE. When the Babylonians were able to conquer the Assyrians, this could have seemed like a stroke of good fortune for the city of Jerusalem, but actually worse was to come as the Babylonians chose to target Jerusalem, destroy the first temple and deport much of the population to the city of Babylon. It would take the actions of the Achaemenid Persians under King Cyrus the Great to conquer the Babylonians, and according to the Bible, Cyrus was a great saviour of the Jewish people in Babylon. The Babylonian Jews were permitted to return to the city of Jerusalem and the construction of a second temple would take place to replace the one destroyed by the Babylonians. From this point and despite Achaemenid overlordship, the people of Jerusalem began to carve out their own identity, even to the point of rebelling 
against their Persian overlords at times. After the conquest of the Persians by Alexander the Great of Macedon, Alexander's successors known as the Diadochi would battle over the lands of the Levant. It would be Ptolemaic Egypt who were keen to gain control of the area, but initially they had to battle with the Antigonids and then the Seleucids, which would spark an era of history in this area called the Syrian Wars. Regardless of who would become the overlords, the people of Jerusalem still valued their own Jewish identity and were willing to stand up for it regardless of their opponent. When the Seleucids attempted to undermine Judaism within the city, it prompted the Maccabean Revolt. Seleucid power over the city waned in the aftermath of the revolt and Seleucid power generally started to weaken until the Roman Republic expanded into the Middle East, taking control of the Levant in the 1st century BCE. The Parthians took the Persian lands of the Seleucids and formed their own version of the Persian Empire, which tried to muscle in on the city of Jerusalem during the early Roman years. And they were successful, but it was a brief success as the Romans managed to push the Parthians back out of Jerusalem and back to the east. Jerusalem's relationship with the Romans was a little dicey, with tensions about the purpose of the temple, the ownership of its riches and the deities worshipped there. The Jews were certainly not willing to give up their religious identity. This also marked the emergence of Christianity, with the beginnings in Jerusalem represented in the New Testament of the Bible, although scholars still search for alternative evidence to substantiate the biblical stories. The Romans were still a long way from accepting Christianity and initially just viewed it as a radical offshoot of Judaism. Tensions between the Romans and the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism and Christianity declined throughout the first century, with the Romans persecuting Jews and Christians and destroying the Second Temple in Jerusalem. After the Emperor Hadrian attempted to rebuild the city, the Bar Kokhba revolt led to Jewish control of the city briefly, before the Romans regained control and banned any Jewish or Christian presence there. This ban became more relaxed once the Abrahamic followers understood that they had to respect the political situation and that they should learn to live under Roman rule. The popularity of Christianity would grow during the 2nd and 3rd centuries throughout the Roman Empire until the Emperor Constantine legitimised the religion allowing Christians to enjoy more freedom in Jerusalem. It was not so good for the Jews, who remained heavily restricted in their rights within the city. It would be Constantine's mother Helena, who was an important character in the establishment of Christianity within Jerusalem, after discovering Jesus Christ's tomb and commissioning the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on the site. Under the Byzantine Romans, Jerusalem would become recognised alongside Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople and Rome as one of the five patriarchates of Christendom. Many Christians from Western Europe would begin long pilgrimages 
to Jerusalem and upon the emergence of Islam, Muslims would initially pray in the direction of Jerusalem before later switching their Qibla to the direction of the city of Mecca. Jews were still being denied rights within Jerusalem thanks to Christian suppression and the Sasanian Persians would use the Jews as allies to get control of the city but it soon became apparent that the Jews were just being used by the Persians who discarded their alliance as soon as they got what they needed. It would take the successful conquest of the city by the Arabs later in the 7th century to allow the Jews to be able to enjoy some freedoms of the city, although they would have to pay a decent amount of tax for the pleasure. Jerusalem was now under the rule of an Islamic nation. The Islamic Caliphate and the city of Jerusalem would transition from the Rashidun period into the Umayyad period and then in turn the Abbasid period. It was during the Abbasid period that a powerful Mamluk dynasty emerged in Egypt called the Tulunids, who would briefly capture Jerusalem before losing it back to the Abbasids. Another Mamluk dynasty called the Ikhshidids emerged in Egypt during the 10th century and they too would conquer Jerusalem and the surrounding lands. But further west in North Africa, another Shia Muslim power was emerging that would threaten the Ikhshidid possessions. The Fatimid Caliphate The Prophet Muhammad's cousin Ali was believed to have truly carried the Islamic divine authority from the Prophet Muhammad by Shia Muslims, which is contrary to the Sunni Islamic view. Ali was also married to the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, who supported her husband's claim to be the rightful successor to the Prophet Muhammad. As such, Fatima is revered in Islam especially by Shias, and the Fatimid dynasty is named after her, as they claimed direct descent from her, and as such would claim to contain the true imams of Shia Islam. It would be the man called Abdullah al-Mahdi Bilah, who would claim to be the Ismaili Fatimid caliph in the year 909, with Ismailism being a branch of Shia Islam. He would be based in North Africa, in and around the Akhlabid region of Ifriqiya, and would begin to rally support for himself against the hostilities of the Akhlabids. Originally, his power lay with the tribes of the countryside, but he would then attempt to invade the cities from the year 902. It took al-Mahdi and his followers seven years of attacks and counter-attacks before the Akhlabids were run out of their territories and the Fatimids took over the territories of Ifriqiya and the island of Sicily. Over the following decades, the Fatimids grew in power with Sunni Muslim Umayyad rivals to their east on the Iberian Peninsula, creating a necessity for the Fatimids to develop some meaningful military capability. It was in the year 969 that the Fatimids would switch their attentions east 
to the fruitful lands of Egypt under the control of the Mamluk Ikhshidids. The Ikhshidids not only controlled Egypt but also Jerusalem and the surrounding lands of the Levant. The power of the Fatimids was too great for the Ikhshidids and their conquest of the Ikhshidids territories was rather quick and allowed the Fatimids to extend their control across the Levant including the city of Jerusalem and beyond Damascus. Fatimid ambitions in the Middle East were curbed by Arab attacks preventing them from launching attacks against the Byzantines and the Abbasids. So the Fatimids chose to consolidate their gains, moving their capital city from Ifriqiya to Egypt and deciding to show a degree of religious tolerance towards the Sunni Muslims and Christians and Jews. Things would remain quite similar during the first half of the 11th century, but to the north, the Seljuk Turks were changing the course of history by initially taking control of the Abbasid Caliphate and this would bring the Turks to the borderlands of the Fatimids, with Jerusalem now potentially playing centre stage on the Fatimid frontier. After the Seljuks had dealt a crushing defeat on the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, a mercenary called Atsiz ibn Uwak al-Khawarizmi was able to take advantage of civil unrest within the Fatimid Caliphate and attack and conquer Jerusalem. The Fatimids withdrew to their centre at Egypt and Atsiz did not have the power to conquer the Fatimids in Egypt. When the Fatimids did try to fight back, the Seljuks were on hand to prevent it. The Crusaders. All of this Turkish aggression towards the Christians of the Byzantine Empire and the holy city of Jerusalem caused great concern for the future of the Christian pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and this was incentive enough for Pope Urban II in Rome to rally as many Christians to the cause after receiving a plea for help from the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos. The Pope would claim that assistance was required to support the Byzantines and to liberate Jerusalem from an oppressive regime. Those who rallied to the cause would have dreams of glorious military conquest, spoils of victory and indulgences for those who wished for God's mercies for their sins. The first crusader army to respond to the call of Pope Urban II was a comparatively low-class collection of individuals, mainly peasants and their families, alongside low-ranking knights. When they reached Asian territory, the Turks gave them a good hiding. Back in Europe, a more significant force was being gathered. This time, significant counts, dukes and princes were showing an interest in religious forgiveness and wealthy new lands and pledged to head east to avenge the defeats of the various Christian armies. The Crusaders this time would travel in groups to the Byzantine Empire where they were met by Emperor Alexios who assisted them in crossing into Asia where they could first attack the now Turkic city of Nicaea before moving on to the city of Antioch and holding it under siege. 
The Fatimids at this point would have been supportive of the Crusaders because they were attacking their common enemy, the Seljuk Turks. However, the biggest problem was the fact that both parties, the Crusaders and the Fatimids, had the same ambition that did not involve a collaboration, and that was the occupation of the city of Jerusalem. So any potential alliance between the two would have had no future. Raymond IV of Toulouse The county of Toulouse was created by the Emperor Charlemagne as a buffer against the aggressions of Basques and Umayyads to the south. The county is in the south of the modern country of France, on its modern border with Spain. Charlemagne appointed a man called Chausseau as the first count, and so the House of Toulouse was established in the late 8th century. In 1041, the Count of Toulouse was a man called Ponce, and he had a son called Raymond. Raymond would have to wait over 30 years after his father's death to become the actual Count of Toulouse, because his older brother would become the Count after his father's death, ruling as William IV Count of Toulouse. It was in the year 1094 that Raymond would become Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse, and he would be a wealthy man as a consequence. William actually had a daughter who had a claim to Toulouse, but Raymond received the county instead with the support of the Pope Urban II, and this may have been because Raymond was also a pious man. Raymond is likely to have made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem before the age of the Crusades, as a story exists about him having a scuffle with the doorkeeper at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in which Raymond lost an eye. Despite being enticed by the glamour of Pope Urban II's iconic call to arms against the Turks in 1095, Raymond was very much his own man with his own ideas. When Raymond reached Constantinople, he may have been aware that his peers who were joining the Crusades were swearing an oath of fealty to the Emperor Alexios Komnenos, but Raymond refused to do so. Raymond would swear an oath of friendship to Alexios, though. Essentially, Alexios was looking to make the Crusaders promise to pledge conquests back to the Byzantine Empire and it may have been due to Raymond's great wealth that he felt that he could defy Alexios's imperious attempts to force this promise of him. Raymond instead pledged not to act in aggression towards Alexios's lands and possessions. Raymond was with his fellow crusaders at the siege of Nicaea and at the Battle of Doralium. The next target of the crusaders' journey was Antioch, and Raymond would decide to take his forces directly there, skipping ahead of his peers, but discovered that it was not going to be as easy as he initially believed, so he had to wait for his peers. It was eventually down to the cunning of another crusader called Bohemond of Taranto that the city of Antioch was taken from the Seljuk Turks, and as such, Bohemond was declared as the Prince of Antioch and this did not sit well at all with Raymond. 
Raymond and his followers agreed that it would be the right move for them to leave Antioch and head for Jerusalem. Godfrey of Bouillon Godfrey was a member of the House of Flanders and in particular the branch of the house that ruled over the county of Boulogne. His father was Eustace II, Count of Boulogne. It would be Godfrey's older brother who would accede to the position of Count of Boulogne, ruling as Eustace III. Godfrey would have to be content with the promise of the position of Duke of Lower Lorraine, an eastern borderland of France. In the tensions that existed in the late 11th century between the Holy Roman Empire and the Papacy, Godfrey found himself on the side of the Holy Roman Emperor. But this was also likely to be a means to preserve his fortune, as the Kingdom of Germany was a direct threat to his promised realm of Lower Lorraine. In any case, when the opportunity to join a crusade to the Holy Land presented itself, Godfrey was so interested that he would sell off his assets in order to fund the trip, probably thinking that life would be easier if he was in control of a Middle Eastern realm. Godfrey would select an alternative route across Europe to that of Raymond or Toulouse, tracking the People's Crusaders route through the Rhineland. When Godfrey reached Constantinople, unlike Raymond, he did pledge an oath of fealty to the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos to help to restore Byzantine territories lost to the Turks. Godfrey was very much alongside his peers at the Siege of Nicaea and the Battle of Doraleum and the Siege of Antioch. The most significant contribution may have been at the forefront of the backup army that rescued Bohemond of Taranto from a likely defeat. Godfrey's reward for this achievement was to be attacked by a savage bear while out hunting during the aftermath of this battle. After the siege of Antioch, it became clear that Bohemond of Taranto was going to stay secure in his new realm at Antioch and Godfrey's own brother, Baldwin of Bologna, had secured his own realm centred at the city of Edessa. So Godfrey decided to travel south with Raymond of Toulouse and his followers towards Jerusalem. Other Crusaders Other significant Europeans among the Crusaders who joined the party headed south to Jerusalem were the older brother of Godfrey of Bouillon, him being Eustace, Count of Bologna, of whom we mentioned earlier, Robert II, Count of Flanders, who was a distant cousin of the three brothers, Eustace, Godfrey and Baldwin, Robert Curthose, son of William the Conqueror, who we can refer to as Robert II, Duke of Normandy, and Tancred of Hauteville, who was the nephew of Bohemond of Taranto. With all of these wonderful connections between the individuals among the Crusaders, we sadly know so very little of the man who was the governor of Jerusalem when the Crusaders arrived. We know that he was a representative of the Fatimid Caliphate. And so we know that just as the Crusaders had taken Antioch from the Seljuk Turks, that the Fatimids had taken Jerusalem 
from the Seljuk Turks too. It was the vizier of the Fatimid Caliphate, Al-Afdal Shahan Shah, who oversaw the conquest and instated Iftikhar al-Dawa as the city's new governor. Al-Afdal had originally underestimated the ambitions of the Crusaders, believing that they were simply trying to reclaim Byzantine losses, so it was an unpleasant surprise for him to learn that the Crusader ambitions were towards the city of Jerusalem, and it mattered not to the Crusaders whether it was under Turkish or Fatimid control. Prelude to the Battle Al-Afdal was in the central lands of the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt when the Crusaders approached Jerusalem, so it would be down to Iftikhar al-Dawla to prepare for the battle. Al-Dawla would not risk a repeat of Antioch where a Christian man who was a Crusader sympathiser had sabotaged the defence of the city by allowing Crusaders to enter. Al-Dawla would expel the Christian residents of Jerusalem to prevent any similar betrayals. Al-Dawla would also take the time to destroy as much of the surrounding resources outside of the city walls to deny the Crusaders the wood of the trees and the water of the wells. The Crusaders, along with all of their families of course, assembled on the Mount of Olives, a high point overlooking the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem itself. Although this was a good observation point, any attacks on the city would have to be conducted from much closer to the city walls, which was quite a challenge. The Crusaders were tired and hungry after such an arduous journey, but were buoyed by the sight of their final prize. They would assemble a military force ready to attack the city, including siege engines and mangonels, but the Crusader army was generally described as ill-equipped for the siege. Thanks to al-Dawla's good thinking, the Crusaders did not have access to wood to construct more weapons and were quickly running out of food and water. If they did not act quickly, then they would not only run out of ways to fuel themselves, but they would run the risk of a force arriving from Fatimid Egypt to aid the defence of the city, which would likely have made an ultimate victory impossible. This is when the Crusaders finally received some good fortune. A shipment of resources arrived at the port of Jaffa, sent from Western Europe that would inspire the Crusaders to become a fervent workforce using the resources from the shipment and wood gathered from the forests further afield to construct a meaningful siege force. Godfrey of Bouillon had been constructing a 60-foot-high siege engine outside the northwest walls of Jerusalem and the Fatimids had been reinforcing that area of the defensive walls as a consequence. Raymond of Toulouse had taken his own forces around to the opposite side of the city of Jerusalem where he was observing the city from the summit of Mount Zion. The Siege of Jerusalem It was the 14th of July 1099 when the sun rose and the Fatimids woke up to an alarming sight. The 60 foot high siege engine that Godfrey had been constructing 
had moved overnight. The Fatimids could not understand how this had happened. Godfrey had constructed the siege tower in sections that could be deconstructed and reconstructed overnight and this is how the siege tower had moved half a mile to the east under the cover of darkness. In order to use the siege engine though, the outer defensive walls of the city needed to be breached and so a huge iron-clad battering ram was used to create a huge split in the outer wall. The Fatimids would be quick to set fire to the ram to prevent it being used again and this worked. But then the Crusaders would need to ensure that this fire completely destroyed the ram altogether so that it wouldn't block the pathway of the siege tower when it was moved through the split in the wall. On the second day, the Fatimids had to stay very aware of Godfrey's actions considering the breach in the outer walls. The Fatimids would be exhausting some of their defences against the constant attacks of Raymond of Toulouse from the southern side of the city, which although they were managing to do successfully, it was still taking valuable resources away from the true threat to the city of Godfrey's advancing siege tower. When the siege tower reached the inner battlements of the city, a furious attack and counter-attack took place in which many lives were lost on both sides. The Fatimids would respond by deploying a naphtha-soaked flaming pole that they could steer towards the Crusader siege tower in a bid to set it ablaze. The Crusaders had anticipated this move, maybe even being tipped off by a disgruntled Christian contingent that had been expelled from the city during the preparations for the siege. They attacked the pole by using vinegar, which was an effective neutraliser, saving the integrity of the siege tower. The siege tower could now be manoeuvred right up to the inner battlements where it would actually stand taller than the battlements themselves. While the crusaders stood atop of the siege tower, they could actually attack the inner wall battlements and the defenders within them. It became apparent that a fire had broken out on a section of the battlements, creating a dense cloud of smoke that completely disorientated anybody too close to it. Godfrey would take full advantage by using one of his Wattle Siege Tower's shields and using it as a bridge to move from the Siege Tower to the battlements. Crusaders flooded onto the battlements and this was a signal of the beginning of the end as the Fatimids quickly realised that they were in serious danger and a desire to attack had turned into a desire to escape. Those Fatimid Jerusalemites that had been successfully resisting the attacks of Robert of Toulouse from Mount Zion heard the news of the panic and abandoned their posts. What followed was a wave of violence. It was not a pleasurable honour to describe the fate of the Jerusalemites on that fateful afternoon of the 15th of July 1099. The Crusaders cared not about the religious identity of the men, women and children that they encountered. Whether they be Jewish or Muslim, they were slaughtered or tortured. The description 
of Jerusalem on that afternoon sounds like hell on earth. Even though the Crusaders believed that their success was in the name of God and that God was favouring them. The heartless bloodshed is sickening to learn of and is confirmed by both Latin and Muslim sources. Aftermath The wild aggressions of the Crusaders upon achieving their ultimate goal of winning the city of Jerusalem was only stopped by a reflective period of worship at dusk. The six-week siege had been concluded after two days of open warfare. The governor, Iftikhar al-Dawla, would successfully negotiate his life being spared and a passage out of the bloody city. History seems to forget al-Dawla after this time. After the terrible systematic slaughter of the population had been completed, thoughts turned to who would govern the city. The wealthiest of all of the Crusaders was Raymond of Toulouse. It may have been Raymond's insatiable desire for personal glory that may have made him unpopular among the Crusaders, and they rallied behind Godfrey of Bouillon to be granted the title King of Jerusalem. But Godfrey would state that he wished not to be referred to as king, as it deflected from the true nature of the conquest which was not necessarily to conquer the city, but simply to reclaim the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In August, the huge army of the Fatimid vizier Al-Afdal Shahan Shah did finally arrive in Egypt at the port of Ascalon, but the Crusaders led by Godfrey of Bouillon were able to prevent the Fatimids from organising themselves after landing by swarming them and capturing Al-Afdal's standard. Many Fatimids fled, but once again the Crusaders completely massacred the Fatimid army and Al-Afdal had absolutely no choice but to flee to Egypt. A Fatimid garrison remained at Ascalon after this battle and they only recognised the authority of Raymond of Toulouse as the true leader of the Crusaders while refusing to engage with Godfrey of Bouillon. Godfrey determined that this garrison was just not worth worrying about too much though, and just left it alone. Godfrey would not get to enjoy his new realm for long though. He was likely not even 40 years of age, when in the following year he picked a fight with the port town of Acre, when he may have been struck by an arrow and killed. His role as the King of Jerusalem was filled by his younger brother, Baldwin of Boulogne. Raymond of Toulouse must have been wondering what exactly he had done wrong in order to have assisted practically and financially with all of these crusader conquests and to come out of it on the other side with no territory to show off. He would turn his attention to the lands which linked the kingdom of Jerusalem to the other crusader states of Antioch and Edessa by declaring himself as the Count of Tripoli but he never actually succeeded in capturing the port city itself before he died in his 60s in the year 1105. (music) 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Siege of Jerusalem in 1099, the culmination of the First Crusade. And uh, we heard the story of how uh, Jerusalem was changing hands throughout the 11th century, how everyone really desired to be in control of this very important city. And uh, ultimately, by the conclusion of the 11th century, it was in Crusader state hands. And uh, next week, we're going to continue the story of the Crusaders right up until its sort of culmination of the, uh, the Crusader state story. So that will be next week. But thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. The Ancient World Cup. This week's Ancient World Cup match was between uh, the Akkadians and uh, of, of Mesopotamia from way back in the third millennium BCE and the Achaemenid Persians, the first great Achaemenid uh, or the, p- first, the first great Persian Empire, I should say, um, spearheaded uh, by Cyrus the Great and his great campaigns to put the Achaemenid Persian Empire on the map. And uh, this week, uh, well, I tell you what, we we had a very low amount of votes. So I think a lot of people didn't really didn't know how they felt about this this uh, matchup. Um, I would say probably the the largest amount of votes we've ha- had in one week was uh, seventy five votes, and that was when the Gauls played the Macedonians. This week we only had thirty seven votes, which has got to be one of the lowest vote counts of all. So. Yeah, I wonder why that is. I wonder if anyone might have an opinion as to why that might be. I think it's probably a, maybe a bit of indifference or or perhaps, um, you know, either way, people really didn't know how they felt about either of these two cultures. Um, but um, the winners of this um, this particular match, match number 15, uh, was uh, with 65% of the vote, the Achaemenid Persians. So the Achaemenid Persians advance to the next round and we say goodbye to the Akkadians. Now, for those of you who don't know what this is, it's the ancient World Cup. We take 64 teams. Uh, we whittle them down uh, one by one until they're uh, down to a grand final. There's two teams left and it's done by a series of votes and that's done through all of the social media platforms of the History of the World podcast, whether it be Facebook, the unofficial Facebook uh, fan page, uh, Twitter, Instagram and uh, the Tapper Talk discussion forum. We count up all the votes and we uh, we uh, send the winning team through to the next round and knock the losing team out. And uh, we've almost completed our lineup for the round of 16. So we've, uh, we're almost down to the last 16 teams. But there's one last place to fill. We've got 15 of those 16 teams and we need to find out who the last team is. And it is determined by the match uh, that is the final match of this round. And we'll see the Assyrians against the Visigoths. Now, the Assyrians they enjoyed a great long period of um, time at the forefront of Middle Eastern history, especially in the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse. They were one of the empires that survived, albeit just by the skin of their teeth. Um, and then ultimately they would go on to build the greatest empire that the world had seen up until that point. Um, so that's the Assyrians. They even conquered Egypt. They conquered the land of Egypt very, very briefly. So such was their, uh, such was their achievements. 
and their opponents are the Visigoths. The Visigoths, um, probably more famous, um, especially as the the main um, the main sort of thorn in the side of the Eastern Romans uh, during the end of the fourth century, uh, when they managed to score a, a famous victory at Adrianople. Uh, against the Romans, which really sort of shook them to their core and almost started the ball rolling for uh, the Germanic incursions into the Western Roman Empire, uh, of which the Visigoths played a great part and they established a, a kingdom um, in Iberia um, at the sort of the, the, at the end of the Western Roman period. Um, very much a, an important part of Iberian history as well, a bit Iberian peninsula history, and, and as such we could call them uh, very much involved in the history of Spain and Portugal. So that's our match, as the Assyrians versus the Visigoths, the final match of the round of 32. Um, log in to all social media platforms, uh, cast your vote from Monday. Listener messages and reviews. Lynn Dowling has uh, written in to tell me of her trip to London and Paris. Um, she wrote in saying, Hi Chris, we just got back from six nights in London and four in Paris. Like you said, it's a long way to Scotland, so we decided to take the Channel train to Paris instead of going to Edinburgh. We also enjoyed better weather that way. Scotland will have to be its own special trip someday. Um and um, yeah, well, I'm glad you, and she goes on to tell me exactly what she did as well, which is like fascinating. It sounds like you had a fantastic timeline and uh, you got to see a lot of stuff that um, sort of um, interested you uh, about uh, these two wonderful cities, London and Paris. Um, highly recommend. And Edinburgh, of course, Edinburgh is beautiful as well. Scotland's a beautiful country. And, and uh, I said to Lynn, it, it warrants its own trip, Scotland. It's... Uh, you know, it's a long way from London on the train. Um, why not go to Scotland uh, and spend a week there, you know, in, in my opinion? Uh, certainly it's what I did. Um, so, um, yes, um, fantastic uh, memories created in these wonderful cities, especially if you come all the way from the USA um, and you like your history. Undoubtedly, uh, it'll be a, a trip that you won't forget too quickly. Um we did get a, a message on uh, the WordPress page, which is the History of the World Podcast.com website, um, from Oz Carr, who's put, uh, Hey, I didn't even start the first episode yet, but I want to thank you for making this. Exactly what I was looking for to catch up on what's happened the last few years. Um, well, I hope, I hope uh, sincerely that you're not disappointed by the podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, but thank you for uh, sending the message. It's nice to know that someone has sort of stumbled across a podcast and, and has been uh, quite thrilled by the amount of content that we've created now. Um, so, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll attract a few more listeners uh, that way. Um, the uh, Let me just uh, have a look and see what else we've got. Laser Randy has uh, written a message on the Patreon page saying, you absolute scoundrel, love the podcast, just now starting volume four. I've been listening non-stop since I found it. History all lifelong. Attached is a picture of me with my trusty Scotch tape dispenser. Cheers. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what the significance of the Scotch tape dispenser is, but uh, thank you nonetheless for writing in and sending me that picture laser. laser. And uh, I'm pleased to announce that um, Laser is uh, among the new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And what that means is, is those wonderful people who commit to a, a contribution, a financial contribution towards the podcast. And uh, if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you can either click on the Patreon link or the Buy Me a Book link and make a contribution towards the podcast. It really does help to make this podcast a better production and you get a mention and, and you qualify for milestone rewards. So, for example, once you've hit the $50 threshold, I send you out a gift pack and you don't have to give it $50 in one go. You can sign up and do $10 a month for five months and you still qualify for this gift. So uh, go along to the Patreon page and see exactly what you can get for your uh, for your kind donations, uh, the little gifts that I, I give out to the uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati members. Of course, that's what we call you, uh, History of the World podcast Illuminati members. Um, alongside Laser Randy, as a new member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, we have Daphne Garrison as well. So welcome to you both and thank you so much for kindly contributing towards the podcast. It really does mean a lot. I'm guilty of uh, rarely checking my Facebook messages, but I went in and I found a couple. So um, I'm going to quickly read those out. Thomas Shea has written in and said, Chris, phenomenal work. I'm only just beginning the second volume because each episode is so dense and packed with information I find fascinating. I have to listen to each one repeatedly to process. I've been looking for a chronological history podcast and by finding your podcast, I managed to wander into another favourite subject of mine, which is paleontology. So much respect for what you've accomplished already and looking forward to learning more. I've been unable to stop thinking about your commentary on the possibility of modern homo sapiens coexisting with other hominids. I believe you said something to the effect of it would depend on their ability to respect each other's range and availability of resources. I cannot help but think of a time where we watched Homo sapiens try to coexist with a human with a more archaic culture and it was when Europe invaded the Americas. I have a little trouble with the idea of Homo sapiens coexisting because it just seems like consuming, succeeding is a part of who we are. And God help any creature in our way. Obviously, it remains to be seen if we are a species that's mature enough to prevent its own extinction. Thank you so much for your podcast. Nothing but kudos. I hope you turn it into a gigantic TV show. Thomas, wouldn't that be a thing? Thank you very much for your message, Thomas. Thank you very much. Uh, Lily Yuan has written in and said, Hi Chris, this is Lily, living in Seattle, have been for almost 25 years, but originally from China. So glad that I stumbled upon your podcast. I've been listening to On Walks with my dog Coco and While Folding Laundry. Currently, I just finished listening to episode 21. I just want to send a quick note to say thank you and keep up the great work. So far, I love all the prehistoric episodes, which I really haven't read much or learned about prior to this. Your podcast has really breathed life 
into these time periods that are so far away in time for us modern humans. Of course, I got a wee bit more excited when hearing you talk about Yanmao Man and Peking Man, which we learned a bit in history classes years ago. Fascinating materials, theories and stories. I look forward to listening to all the episodes and go back to listening to them down the road. Oh, I did also check out the Grub Truck post you had mentioned. That looks like a Homo Erectus. Well, I don't think we ever really got down to the the full uh, we didn't we never really got the full knowledge of what that uh, grub truck e- image was but thanks uh, to another history of the world podcast listener we uh, assessed uh, that it was actually a banksy image so it was a, a a mysterious stencil image that appeared and and the grub truck have obviously inherited it because they they liked the look of it so much so um that's what we do know about that character on the grub truck. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably worth tracking back to the episodes of Volume 1 and following that little timeline back in 2018 when we were uh, talking about um, the grub truck in, in uh, Moscow, uh, USA. So um, thank you so much uh, for those messages, both Lily and Thomas. We had a review this week, very well done, from Econ George via Apple Podcasts, United States of America, you're based in Econ George, and you've put, I've recently began listening to the podcast, and I've finished Volume 1 and am seven episodes into Volume 2. Chris has set a daunting task for himself and has done a wonderful job. I'm a college professor in the US and have been impressed by his skill in framing, researching and telling our story. It does not only inform me, but also a class that I'm currently teaching. Thank you and well done. There's um, there's not many warmer compliments than that, uh, Econ George, that um, we, you know, just to know that um, someone is using my work to educate others, um, that's just quite quite humbling and and uh, lovely to hear so thank you very much for sending that message or or for making that review um that's uh that's you know great great stuff thank you well that's it for another week hot welders thank you so much for joining me this week next week we continue the story of the crusades we take ourselves right up to the end of the Crusader States period. And uh, so it'll be a very fast-moving story. We'll cover a lot of the uh, of the romantic stories of the Crusades, so the period of Saladin and uh, Richard, Richard the Lionheart, um, uh, before we focus on a couple of the battles in the two episodes after that. So until next week, thanks for joining me. Make sure you join me next week. And until next week, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.